The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a special guest. Actually, she's a returning guest. We've spoken with Kimberly Weichel in the past. Kim is a friend and an extraordinary woman who lives as a world citizen and and always has. Um, She's known as a social entrepreneur, and I would dare say she was a social entrepreneur before that term became so widely used. Uh, She's very focused on building bridges between cultures around the world, and she has worked with some amazing people and developed some beautiful programs, very successful. Kim, welcome to Leading Conversations. Thank you, Cheryl. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on your beautiful show. Oh, it's great to have you here. Where are you today? Well, we, uh, as you know, are from the San Francisco Bay Area, but have been living back east, uh, actually in Maryland, for seven years now and love it here. But we do have a home in uh, California and we'll be returning at some point. Ah, okay. I do remember when you went uh, to the D.C. area, and um, that was a big leap, but we can talk about that a little bit later. So, I, first I have to, like, take, take us back, because I know our listeners are going to want to know, um, where did this start in you? You have such a passion for the world and peace and people being good to one another and connecting and understanding the power of working together. When did that belief, those beliefs, really start in you? Well, it's interesting, Cheryl. Thanks for the great question. Um, I guess I've always had an interest in things international. Uh, when I was really young, I loved to study different cultures. And, you know, my mom would take me to museums. And for Halloween, I would dress up as a Japanese girl. Uh, even though my hair was very blonde, she'd spray it black. And I'd dress up in these different outfits. And I was interested in the exchange students in my high school. And I wanted to become one. And I just had this, you know, interest in other countries. And I'd pour over maps. And I was interested in geography and I wanted to travel and we didn't as a family we couldn't really afford it but I just had this deep interest that came from somewhere uh, and I knew that I would somehow be involved with uh, you know cross-cultural work in some way and then what led to my desire to build greater understanding was at a fairly young age and these are some of the stories which we can just talk about in more detail but I witnessed 
some conflict and violence and frustration with really difficult systems in working in reintegration camps after World War II in Germany and working in, during the apartheid era in South Africa and during the Cold War period with the former Soviet Union. I could see the devastating impact of these uh, of this conflict, of war, of you know, violence on people. And I thought, how do we build understanding as a basic building block of peace that would prevent such future atrocities from occurring? And so, I mean, it wasn't something I just woke up and decided to do. It, was, it evolved over time in this deep passion to say, what can I as one individual working with other individuals do to create greater understanding to prevent this, these kind of situations from the future. And so that sort of guided me, guided my path as I ventured forth in my life. So I guess that's, that's how I would share that. Well, I know that it has been such a deep commitment in you. Um, you know, I, I met you probably, uh, gosh, maybe 10 years ago. And, um, and I was so struck by your level of commitment. And, you know, you have the experience um, of really being embedded in different cultures. It's not simply a matter of somebody who's interested in making the world better and then going and, you know, trying some things out or volunteering. You really live in the cultures and work with people to change the way they see the world or to enhance what they have already in a way that will, you know, better the lives of those around them. So, and I also know that you're married for a very long time and you have two grown kids. So did you do this with family? Did you take everybody and just go? (laughs) Well, it was a both and. So some of the travel has been, yes, I've been married for 42 years. Uh, We adopted a girl when she was 12 and she's now 28 and happily married. Our own biological son is 23 and happily working. Uh, And so I did. I, I took my family and I made things a family adventure so that it was a shared experience, some of which, of course, was part of my work. So I would do that on my own, but I would try and engage them. Um, one of the things, as you may remember, Cheryl, is I'm a real Californian, love California, but there was a deeper calling I experienced uh, mm-hmm. from work I had done years prior in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, because my work is international and because a lot of the work is focused on peace building, it's headquartered in the Washington, D.C. area. And well, there was a deep calling when President Obama was looking like he was going to win, and I said, you know, I think it's time. I think it's time to take the family and experience time in that area where I have greater access of shaping policies and being engaged at a whole different level than I could do in the San Francisco area. And so I moved my family across country, and it's worked out far better than we could ever imagine. But it's one of those things when you feel called to do something, it's not just a left-brain decision, it's a whole-body decision that you need to do something for me to fulfill um, a deeper soul journey, I guess, is the way to say it. Mm -hmm. And 
So it's, it, I had no idea. In fact, I didn't even have a job when we moved across yeah, country. I, I just <laughs> knew that I needed to yeah. be there, but I couldn't, was, this was not something I wanted to do alone. And I, I shaped it so that it worked for everybody and that I, you know, it, it really has worked out beyond what I could have imagined for all of us. And that just makes me smile. And we came with the idea of two years. And as I mentioned, it's been seven. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. you know, I think when we're, we're all called in different ways, and it's how do we listen to that inner voice and, and move to, for me, it's the highest level of effectiveness that I can do at this time, and that's why I know I need to be here still at this time uh, to mm. do what I'm doing. And so I feel grateful that we've, that, you know, it's worked out so well, and, um, and yet I miss California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, California gets in your blood, and uh, I, I totally understand that. Um, so tell us about working in D.C. and with the Obama administration. Um, you know, what did you end up doing there, and, you know, what kind of access did you have to whom? Mm. Well, I'm actually not in the Obama administration, but I, I'm doing a number of projects that work with many who are in the administration. Um, I became CEO of an international NGO called Peace by Peace, which is a women's leadership and peacebuilding organization that fit, it was a great fit with exactly what I cared about. They, they were pioneers in um, marketing, well, uh, shall we say, connecting women across divides. And they pioneered technology right after 2001. Uh, they formed with a question, how can women build peace? And how do we connect across these differences so that we learn from each other? And as when I became CEO shortly after we arrived here, uh, I launched a mentorship program to engage young people. I launched a program that connects Arab, Muslim, and Western women to learn from what does it mean to be a Muslim woman? What does it mean to be an Arab woman, but there's so much misunderstandings and sadly stereotypes in our society. So in doing this uh, work, I got very quickly engaged with a lot of networks and coalitions here, uh, many of which engage uh, people in the government. I initially thought that's where I wanted to be, but I wasn't sure, Cheryl, with my sort of creative spark, whether that would right. give me as much leeway. So one can hear, and that's what's so beautiful about this area, really, is I've never met such a, a more talented, highly educated, accomplished, and very motivated smart people, and I enjoy working so much with them and, and learning from them uh, and involved mm. in all kinds of ways to shape policy. So, for example, uh, I've been very involved in something called the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security, something our government adopted, and yet we as a civil society have input into shaping this and how we frame our programs all over the world that engage women and, and you know, build peace at different levels, and how do we in, ensure that more women are trained as uh, being at the peace table, where sadly they haven't been. So um, w you know, it's been a number of efforts of being involved through the U.S. Institute of Peace and many other organizations that have close connections with government um, po policy and government initiatives, and I've appreciated that. It's something I couldn't have mm. done from San Francisco. Right, right. I absolutely make, makes sense. So, this program, Women, Peace, and Security, 
where does what is that? <laughs> well, you know, it comes from the understanding that women as half the population have a tremendous amount and innate abilities, but yet we are not being engaged at the highest level. So women are the ones typically building peace at the grassroots. We're the community leaders, typically. We're the ones running the NGOs. Uh, and, and often, something I write about in, this, in the book that I've just published is about feminine leadership and the wisdom that women typically, you know, not all women, and certainly some men have what I call feminine, um, we all have a spectrum, of course, but uh, the of feminine course. is typically associated with, with women. And so these, are, these traits of being, uh, valuing partnership, of valuing long-term thinking, of valuing collaboration, which women are typically good at, of power with rather than power over, and being mm-hmm. inclusive and, and you know so forth. There are many traits I've researched and written about that women typically bring to leadership, and yet women have been excluded for so many reasons at the highest levels, certainly of, you know, of political leadership and others, although, of course, we're seeing a change now to some extent, but it's also very few women have been at the peace table, very few women have been mediators, uh, and so we need to have the wisdom of, from half our population to create a holistic response to key global issues, and I think it's not a, this is not a women's rights issue at all. It's, it's a sustainable peace issue, as I describe it, yeah. to, to benefit from the best that we all can bring to decision-making and problem-solving. So it's really of how do we engage and ensure women are, equal, are heard, not only just represented, but heard, because 50% of all peace treaties fail after five years. Why? Because women were typically not involved with decision-making, and yet they're the ones at the grassroots with the fingers on the pulse of what's really going on. They know what the conflict, what it's really about, and they're the ones that can speak up to how to resolve it sustainably, not just short-term, but long-term. So that brings me to the whole concept of our current political environment, in the U.S. Um, There are people all over the world listening to this, and the perspective, you know, from the outside looking in um, has, it must be something of a um, comedy show because it's not anything like any um, political experience I think we've ever had, and at least in the U.S. And... um, You know, I'm wondering how much you think, I mean, clearly, I'll just say this, I'm a Hillary fan, um, full disclosure, and and I am very excited about the potential of Hillary being our president, and, and I'm also very excited about the fact that she would be the first woman president. And so if Hillary were not, Qualified, I would not be in support of her. So, so that that being said, do you think that some of the challenges that she has had, and that you know she has quite a, um, you know, I guess I guess it's kind of a, a cheap. How can I say this? People have very strong opinions about her, and they 
tend, they tend to either like her or not like her, period. And do you think that there is an issue with her gender? Do you think that people looking at her as a successful politician um, are also layering on the, it, the fact that she's a woman? Absolutely. There is a lot of research to show that's true, Cheryl, so it's not just my belief. Uh, in fact, what's interesting, I'm fortunate right now, I'm taking a course at Georgetown University uh, called Women in American Politics, taught by none other than Donna Brazil, who's the Democratic National oh. Chairwoman. And I thought, what a time to take this course at a time when we may have our first woman president. So she's given us a tremendous amount of reading, and I've been reading a lot about the suffragettes and all the history, which I knew to some extent and fascinated by this. But indeed, there's a lot of discrimination of, because, towards Hillary because she's a woman. And nobody would say that, but I think that's a lot of what's happening. And it's fascinating when you step back and look at this issue and how... I feel, okay, that there's the hyper-masculine in one of the candidates yeah. uh, and yeah. this idea of power over, of that, that he has the power to uh, put anyone down he chooses. It is the, it is the yeah. ultimate in hyper-masculine, and that's what I'm talking about. Just the opposite is what we're wanting more feminine, and that that, that is just not sustainable, and it is, it's almost like we're going to hit a wall of the worst of the masculine, so to bring us, the, to have the pendulum swing back to the middle center to say we need a more balanced, nuanced society. Uh, so I think that, you know, if Hillary is elected, and I agree with you, I'm a fan of hers too, that it would be an extraordinary role model for girls. They can't imagine, girls have yes. never seen a woman president in this country. And so how can they imagine ever becoming one if they've never experienced it? So she has, there's so much at stake here. And what this will do for our kids to show that a woman can be president. But yes, she's part of what it is, part of it's Hillary, part of it's many things, I imagine, but certainly part of it is her gender. And it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, and that's why her opponent's uh, support base are basically white men. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, so, you know, there's so many different directions we can take that, but we're going to first Take a break, and when we come back, we're going to pick that conversation up. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. 
You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for our special series on Think Big, Work Small with Game Changers presented by SAP on the Voice America Business Channel. Real estate has always been a great investment, but some people don't always know where they can start. Why not think like a real estate investor? Tune into Keeping It Real with Lori Wetzel. It's not just about buying and selling houses. It's about creating lifestyles, financial freedom, and empowerment. We'll talk about the latest real estate news, financial literacy, and our featured guests include authors, entrepreneurs, and celebrities. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations to Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest, Kim Weichel. Kim is a citizen of the world, and her recent book, Beyond Borders, One Woman's Journey of Courage, Passion, and Inspiration, really tells her own story and some of the stories of the people that she has seen really evolve and blossom around the world and coming into their own power. So we were just talking about power and the overuse of power and the high masculine power. If you were to describe Hillary Clinton's style of power, what words would you use? Well, let's see. I think Hillary is a centrist... um I, I admire her. I think she's very experienced. I don't always agree with her, so I will say that. Um, I think that uh, Hillary is is uh, symbolic of so many women in our society that have had to step maybe more into the middle than they would normally choose to, to mm. go up the career ladder, to get elected, whatever it is. And I think Hillary is quite strategic. Um, and she's obviously very smart and very capable. Um, she is, uh, she, uh, well, she probably balances feminine and masculine leadership styles. Uh, and I actually voted, I campaigned and voted for Obama over Hillary in 2008 because I felt he had, he actually exuded for me a little bit more on the feminine side in terms of the ability to collaborate and to bridge. Uh, But I absolutely appreciate so much about her, and I really hope she will have the ability to reach beyond the incredible divides that our country is in now. And so I'm hopeful that she will have a, a spirit of collaboration and engagement and bringing on, as I know she will, incredibly smart people to work with her mm-hmm. because we are a very divided country and almost the extremes. And so she's going to have to have embody a lot of feminine wisdom to be able to do this. And we'll see. I believe she can. I believe she can. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a tough job, and, you know, we, we can 
hold the space for that, that, you know, things can change and that she is enough of a politician um, that she can help that happen. You know, there's, I love Barack Obama and there has been um, characterization of him that he doesn't really like politics and so he didn't do the kinds of political negotiations that um, may have helped. I don't know if anything could help, but perhaps. Um, but she has been there so long and she has done that a lot. So um, maybe that will be you know, her edge, right? And, you know, I, I wonder about your experience with women around the world, you know, in these different programs and these different peace building and leadership programs that you've developed and supported. And, you know, as you look around the world, do you find that um, different cultures not only see women differently, but in their core that women are different from one another from culture to culture? We're seeing wide differences. I mean, we still have some societies with uh, strong patriarchal cultures and religions that prescribe certain, um, you know, traditions and there are certain belief systems, but I I do see this changing. I've been fortunate to do a lot of traveling. I've traveled in in some Gulf countries and the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and Bahrain and, you know, Often women are are far more similar, and this is one of the themes in my book you mentioned, is that our similarities are so much stronger than our differences. And and yet we all do have differences, and I think it's about appreciating those differences. And so when I was in um, the Gulf countries, I listened because we in the West think feminism is a certain thing and we have certain rights and we should do certain things certain mm. ways. But you have Islamic feminism, which is quite different. I noticed a number of very smart leaders still wearing the long um, abaya uh, and hijab, but they would dress, you know, in modern dress underneath it and still headed companies. And so there are ways of bridging tradition with belief systems that I've seen in different ways. And, uh, I I mean, remarkable advances in even countries. I've met women from Saudi Arabia, and our stereotype from Saudi Arabia is such that we think all women are uh, disadvantaged, but that's from the women I've met, you know, that's to some extent true, but to some extent we're seeing remarkable leaders in that country doing things quietly behind the scenes and not pumping their breasts what they're doing. But it's really, uh, you know, I think it's an opportunity to experience a wide range of cultural differences. I've seen this in many countries I've traveled and with women I've worked with. Can you share some stories with us um, around working with some of these women? Uh, well, sure. You know, I lived and worked in South Africa for five years, and it's one of the stories that I wrote about in my book. This was a difficult time. We lived there during the height of apartheid in 1975 when... Um, Differences were extremely stark. Apartheid, of course, means separateness. And the uh, Afrikaner government, the white government, had an iron fist in keeping people divided. Uh, there was a time of Sharpeville. It was a very tense time. 
and yet I knew that I couldn't live there as a white American unless I was actively engaged doing what I could to help build a post-apartheid society. So I chronicle in my book about some of the journeys that I, 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 the work that I did there in terms of working with employers to develop, uh, you know, more non-discriminatory policies in the workplace and so on. But I worked with a lot of strong women who were working courageously at the grassroots level. They were the ones in this large squatter community that I've written a lot about called Crossroads on the outskirts of Cape Town. They were the ones in Crossroads that if parents had to work and had nowhere to take care of, you know, to leave their kids, they would find places for them to stay and, you know, have good care. They helped organize uh, a vigilante, which was sort of a a volunteer uh, patrolling to keep the community safe. It was 20,000 Africans lived in this tightly packed squatter community because they had nowhere else to live because the apartheid government would not build housing for them, yet they needed to be there to find work. Uh, And so the women were the strong ones that would take care of their community that would hold meetings about staving off demolition. And this one of the, the efforts that was so profound for me was working with a team of people, including the women of Crossroads, to prevent the government from demolishing this large squatter community. And we were mm-hmm. fortunate to be successful, uh, partly because of the international pressure that we helped engender to put pressure on the government not to do this. Uh, but mm-hmm. I have seen the the commitment of these women, and as well as in the former Soviet Union, where I worked for a number of years, of again working several jobs, going to the store every day to buy food, taking care of the kids, cooking, and keeping the peace in their community, and helping to lead some of the peace building efforts to uh, you know make sure that their communities were safe. So I've been just, uh, I just feel blown away, really, and so uh, respectful of the courage that so many, so many women have had to, to have so many roles to be able to balance and juggle all this, and yet they're the strong ones often in their communities. So in that situation, if the government was successful in demolishing the squatter community, where would those people have gone? Well, the system of apartheid would, you know, make them all go back to their, quote, homelands, which is not their homelands. These were rural areas that did, had very few jobs, and, of course, part of the global trend of people needing to leave rural areas to go to cities to find work. But they had no home. They had no other home. And this is what was so concerning was they lived in these very you know, tight, overcrowded tin shack squatter conditions, and yet they needed to stay there and make the best of it to, you know, find jobs to support their families. Uh, but otherwise, they would have really nowhere else to go. And, and the irony of apartheid, when you think about it, was they kept down, they provided substandard education for the majority of the population. They didn't provide housing. They had very menial jobs, and yet the economy could not sustain itself for the very small percentage of what the white population. It needed a much larger base of trained professionals to keep the economy going. 
so that when apartheid finally crumbled, um, there was not the trained base and the economy mm-hmm. had suffered for so long. So it was so counterproductive, but of course it was this horrible um, system and having worked in, uh, there on, and I could see it from the inside and develop uh, directing programs to work with these employers and within crossroads and with embassies to get information out, you know, we really uh, stood our ground and I could see the absolute importance of uh, mm-hmm. speaking up when we're frustrated and that our actions, in fact, do matter. Our voices do make a difference. So, you know, I'm wondering then, when Nelson Mandela became the leader, did those things change? Did the schooling and education change? Did the opportunities for different jobs change? Things change uh, a lot, certainly, but they have struggled in South Africa, sadly, because the African National Congress was was really about fighting for its freedom. They were not trained as a political party to run the country. So they had the skill sets of fighting against the apartheid government to create a post-apartheid society, but then uh, didn't have necessarily the skills that, of course, Nelson Mandela is revered by you know the, the world and what he was yeah. able to talk about somebody that embodies the feminine and the masculine and yeah. what he was capable of doing as a leader but the ANC, I think, has struggled in South Africa, and they're still struggling to create, uh, you know, a, a really strong economy. And I have to say, I visited South Africa several years ago, and sadly, Crossroads still exists. So I'm thinking, well, why hasn't the government provided more housing? Apartheid's been over for you know, over 25 years. Why, you know, and it's... So it's it's sad that we they still have a lot of economic challenges and it's really the legacy I think of apartheid uh, primarily. Fascinating. You know, these are all the details that many people do not know and and believe that they have this understanding of why countries are the way they are, why cultures or governments work the way they do, and in fact, there's so much to the story, right? And Absolutely. so, you know, yeah, and you know, and that's something that I see that is pervasive um, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I, I call it our soundbite culture um, where people think they understand the whole story because they hear a couple of sentences. And, you know, I, how do we get past that? How do we get people to really want to know more and to understand? Well, part of it is understanding, firstly, that we're all global citizens. So what we do in this country affects other countries. We know that. And so the world is watching our election because whoever wins, it will affect the world, and vice versa. And so it's, it's important that we understand this and that we're all interconnected. And to me, it's both a spiritual concept as well as an actual one. And so 
the ability to travel. When we travel, we learn, we experience differences, we learn mm-hmm. from others. The more we learn about others, the more we can understand ourselves and even our own country. So to approach life with curiosity, to uh, be able to get out of our comfort zone and try new things, to maybe even in our own neighborhoods, if there's a Muslim person, invite them over for dinner. Get to know people with differences. You know, rather than having differences, and this is one thing that's fascinated me, Cheryl, I've never quite understood why we often define ourselves what, about our differences rather than seeing our similarities first. Because our right. similarities are always greater than our differences. And so how do we overcome that personally? Well, we reach out beyond those differences. So in this election, maybe have somebody over for dinner that's from a different political party and be able to understand what's driving them. Because I would maintain that we often all want similar things, just our strategies for getting there might be different. And so by understanding why, we ask the question, why are, and what's really important to you? If we look at those common questions, we're going to discover so many similarities. So I think firstly, just in our own neighborhoods, whether it's through our churches, our schools, our work, invite somebody over that has a different religious, political, ethnic, whatever background, and then have a chance to, to travel and immerse ourselves in a different culture with eyes wide open and asking with interest rather than with judgment. So I think those would be, you know, some of us. I think we all actually have a responsibility. It's not okay just to live in our cave anymore. It's, it is a responsibility. We're all powerful as citizens, and we have the potential, you know, to make big differences. I say our actions and our words do matter. So why not open our minds and be able to reach out to whoever the other is, and I, I can guarantee you, we will be surprised and most likely pleasantly surprised when we do that. Mm. I know, but I've always had that experience in um, being in in cultures around the world and um, have always come back so much better for it. Uh, You know, it's um, fascinating to me how many um, people in the U.S. have never been outside the U.S., and um, and even though we have regional cultures, it's not really the same as, you know, when you move into different countries, et cetera. And, you know, I'm not sure that um, there is as much interest in traveling the world in our country as um, there may be in other countries. And, you know, it's fascinating to me. I mean, the people that... that um, do travel, many, 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 either for business or for pleasure or, um, you know, because um, maybe that's where they were born or it doesn't matter. They, they, they are different. They are, and that's what I, you know, here we go again. What's different? They are different. They see the world um, through the eyes of the connections versus... Yes. Uh, right, you know, versus you know the separation, and so I agree with you. Travel has got to be one of the elements that helps people understand. And you know, when you have uh, women of who are mothers of different cultures sit together, you find that they all have the same 
concerns about their kids. Absolutely. um, Right? You know, and and if you have some of the um, men who are providers in their families sit together, they all have the same concerns about their ability or their capacity to really take care of and have that sense of responsibility. And, you know, so it's fascinating to me that when you push past any of the cultural elements, you find at the core there's some basic human need. There's some basic humanity connections that we all have. And if we could start there, right, if we could start there, um, then, you know, maybe there's hope. Right, and we can start right in our own neighborhood. I mean, not everybody can afford to travel, perhaps, but uh, the thing is we start even where we are in our own communities. Fortunately, I I guess most are fairly diverse in the United States, so we start where we are, and maybe through, again, our workplace, our church, our school, our neighborhood, there are going to be people that have different political, different religious, different whatever, and background, and so why not, but the thing is, it it needs to be with a spirit of curiosity, rather than, I'm going to invite them over to tell them what they should think, and I know we don't, you know, necessarily think that we're doing that, but I think how we need to check our own intent. Are we doing this to really learn and ask questions for information, or are we doing it to tell? And so the the openness, the curiosity is a way to gain much more information and wisdom. Hmm. You know, um, so it seems like what we should be teaching kids is something they come into the world with. We just have to remind them they have that, that open and curiosity is, openness and curiosity is, kind of who they come in as, and we've got, to, we've got to really nurture that and cultivate that, right? Well, absolutely, and that's where in some areas of the world, uh, the culture, the, the divide is so entrenched that right now I'm losing a sense of hope for, quite frankly, our generation, where those divides have been passed down and are very entrenched, and yet the hope for me is in kids who can get to know the other through different means and not see them as the other, but they have common projects that they're hopefully learning through school. I think schooling is is such an important, but, you know, it's also they go home and they hear uh, information from their parents. So how do we uh, cultivate and encourage that sense of curiosity, but not judging just because of, you know, all of the, the things we judge on. It's, it's having that spirit of, of interest because that's what it's about. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who had judged each other, but then when they got to underneath those concerns, they realized how much they had in common and they could build hmm. some real strong bridges because of that. I, I love that. So, how it works, no. Let's see. We're going to take a break, and we'll make them right back. We're going to talk a little bit more about your book, Beyond Borders, One Woman's Journey of Courage, Passion, and Inspiration. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you pursuing your passions in business? Is your purpose integrated into your brand? Are you telling your story? Building a thriving business stems from authentic communication that serves your audience, champions big ideas, and generates big impact. Learn how to grow your business in a more meaningful way by tuning into the Soul Shill Hour with host Francis Leary. It's more than business development. It's soul and inspiration, too. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. If you're interested in gaining strategies to be more successful both at work and your personal life, check out Turn the Page with host Hemda Mizrahi. It's all about building new habits and perspectives. The show helps you identify the changes you need to make that align with your values and priorities. And then apply these principles to your career, health, social life, and other areas. These are proven techniques that work. Turn the Page airs live Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esmazita. We're speaking with Kimberly Weichel today, who is the author of Beyond Borders, One Woman's Journey of Courage, Passion, and Inspiration. So this book, Kim, is beautiful. You're a great writer and author, and you have written several books, and a lot of them focus on people's hearts. A lot of them focus on doing good work in the world that you love, that you really want to do, and you have a very uplifting approach to helping people think through that. Um, So in your book, Beyond Borders, um, you talk a little bit about, well, you talk a lot, actually, about your own path, your own journey through the years and the different experiences you've had. What made you decide to write this book? Well, firstly, thank you, Cheryl. <clears throat> you know, I've been fortunate to have had some remarkable experiences in my life through interesting times of history, some of which we've touched on in our conversation. And some friends who have known me said, you know, Kim, you've had like an insider's perspective. During these times, you ought to write about them. So since several people suggested that, I started writing and basically never stopped. And it became a journey of self-exploration. 
You know, you have a chance when you look back at your life to say, what were those key influences? Who influenced me? You know, why was I called to do that then? And with hindsight, you gain so much wisdom about what you've experienced. And I realized how much wisdom I had gained. And I will say, I would say most of us, all of us, have gained wisdom in our lives. How often have we been to a memorial and learned about a person Mm. that we wished we had known? So why not Mm. have the gift of sharing that wisdom with each other while we're here? That can be a gift to others. And so my hope is that this book will inspire other people to share their stories because I'm just simply one person and I've had wonderful experiences, but so have you and so has everybody listening. And so I really want to encourage people to consider writing their story because stories Mm. sew our hearts together. You know, we share those same, the human condition. And when somebody has the courage to share personally, that opens up the eyes of other people, and we are connected at a deeper level. So I do hope that it inspires others to share theirs. It makes me think of the oral traditions of um, indigenous cultures, and and even before we had um, other ways to communicate, you know, people spoke their story, and that was passed on in the families and in the communities um, from generation to generation. And so really understanding, you know, what, what happened, why it happened, what their principles are, people being able to ask questions, really um, dig into and seek to understand all of that. We have so lost that. And I, I have a high concern so the internet has some fabulous benefits and you know connecting and being able to access people quickly and you know we have some wonderful benefits of this and i have concern that we have turned the oral traditions into um, you know sound bites yes absolutely Absolutely. Well, one of the uh, chapters, which I'd love to share briefly, is is touching just on that subject, and it was, um, it's really a part of our American history that most people don't know about. That's why I'd love to tell the story. Um, mm. It's about the Iroquois society that existed from the 1500s onwards, and there were six nations, and they were warring nations until some uh, person by the name of the Peacemaker came along and really brought the message of peace, which in his case wasn't just the absence of war, but a state of mind, what they called the good mind. And he developed something called the great law of peace. And the great law was their constitution, but it was also a way of being. So uh, he really uh, developed a system of checks and balances. For example, having clan mothers who were selected from their community uh, would work with the community in developing policies. The clan mothers would select the chiefs who were men. The, the chiefs would carry out the policies. But if they didn't, the clan mothers could depose them. <laughs> so what a check and balance that was. And the great love peace 
was studied by the founders of our country, and it it was influential in the in developing our U.S. Constitution. Most people don't realize that it was also oh. a model for the United Nations as a union that worked together over centuries in peace because of the peacemaker, and the role of the clan mothers was an inspiration to the founders of the women's movement. So the suffragettes studied the role of the clan mothers in, you know, how they, their role in society. And I'll just briefly say I was very fortunate. One of the most extraordinary experiences in my life was a 10-day journey with a Native American chief, Chief Dick, Dick Thomas. Uh, I traveled with two other women, so three of us. We were known as the clan mothers, and we traveled the path of the peacemaker. But Jake would, kept pointing out to us, of course, how Native society had declined, sadly, and he kept saying it was because the role of women had declined, and he kept saying over and over again, women need to get strong again, women need to get strong again. And just briefly, after our journey, we wanted to film him because it is an oral tradition. He knew all the languages of the Six Nations. Of the, We wanted to film him reciting the Great Law of Peace. And just before we were going to send a film crew to Canada to film him, he died of a massive heart attack. And it was devastating, but it was like, Cheryl, it was like he passed a baton to us women saying, it is your responsibility now to share the message of the great law, which his life was devoted to, and to make the women strong again. And so I have kept that promise since his death in 1998, and it has been a motivational force for me, but it's also important to understand how invaluable the great law was, and I describe it in great detail in, in my chapter. It's, it's a fascinating constitution, but it's a process of being as well. Uh, so I, we, I learned a lot from that journey. I bet. Oh, there's so much richness in your book, Kim, and I... I know that people are going to want to know more about you and more about your work, and how can they find out? Well, they can go to my book website, which is www.beyondbordersbykim.org. I'll repeat that, all one word, beyondbordersbykim.org. So they can see an interview that I did uh, for a television show. They can learn a little bit more about some of the chapters, and they can order the book there. It's both uh, downloadable uh, as well as on paperback. And I do hope, I'd love to hear from people that read it, and I really hope that it inspires others to write their story. Oh, thank you, Kim Michael. It has been a privilege to have you back on Leading Conversations. Well, it's been a privilege to speak with you, Cheryl. I, I so value your ongoing dialogue and encouraging uh, active listening and learning from others. It's exactly the purpose of my book, so I'm honored to be a guest on your show. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 